Hi, I'm Scott David Chase. This is the For the Love of Film podcast. Uh, on this episode, I'm going to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the latest Quentin Tarantino movie. Uh, yesterday, Danny Boyle's uh, British uh, Beatles fantasy film, I guess, would be the best way to describe it. Uh, the horror film Crawl, and then the documentary uh, Lost Soul, which is about the making of the film The Island of Dr. Moreau, the most the most recent uh, iteration of The Island of Dr. Moreau. So, uh, yeah, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the ninth Quentin Tarantino film. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a Quentin Tarantino fan. I saw it uh, opening weekend, which was last weekend. Uh, I didn't see it opening day just because of my work schedule, but... Um, you know, I did go see it with a buddy, and I've always, I've always looked forward to Quentin Tarantino's films, but with somewhat diminished expectations in the last decade or so. And you know, I've talked to people about it since seeing it uh, because I, you know, after I saw this, uh, I ranked the films, the his nine films from my least favorite to my best, my most favorite, and this this came in at number seven, which. You know, obviously it's lower on the ranking, but um, it was his ninth film in 27 years. Um, so, you know, if stuff is going by schedule, he will probably release his 10th film uh, like around or somewhere on the 30th anniversary of his first feature-length film, Reservoir Dogs. The, the issue with Tarantino is, and it's, I mean... It's not really an issue, but he came out of the gate with such an amazing film, with uh, Reservoir Dogs being a fully formed film, and he had a clear vision, and he's kind of stuck with his vision ever since. Um, you know, the the quirky, quippy dialogue, um, you know, the... I don't know, you you can kind of sense, you can tell a Quentin Tarantino film right away. He also uses a lot of the same actors, which he did again in this film, uh, albeit mostly in minor roles. Uh, you know, he, he did uh, both Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio, who are the leads in this, uh, play, uh, have been in Django Unchained and uh, uh, Inglorious Bastards, so... Uh, and some of the minor players, Michael Madsen, the one that comes to mind first and foremost, and then Kurt Russell and uh, stuntwoman Zoe Bell uh, have much smaller roles in this as well. But and, and this, much like Inglorious Bastards, this is a r- revisionist history sort of fantasy film. It takes place in uh, late, in early, and then later 1969 in Hollywood. And it deals with a um, film and television actor and his stunt double, played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, and sort of how their lives are intertwined and uh, you know how how Leonardo DiCaprio's character is getting on later in his career. And but it also stars uh, Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate. And, 
you know, we get a we, we get a little brush with Charles Manson, which f- from the trailer I thought he was going to be in the film much more than he is, but he's literally in one scene in this movie. But uh, we do get much more exposure to the the Manson family, and uh, basically Tarantino rewrites the infamous night where um, several of Manson family members murdered Sharon Tate and uh, a few of her friends in their home. Um, Like I said, it's Tarantino's revisionist history, so things go differently. But, uh, you know, I won't get too much into that. Um, And that, that, that event is at the tail end of the movie, the last half hour of the movie. But, um, I guess my biggest disappointment with this film would be, uh, you know, the characters were interesting. The narrative was not that strong and it. Like this, what actually happens in here isn't very memorable. And, uh, I should say the male characters are strong because, um, we never, I never really got a sense of Sharon Tate as an actual character. Um, you know, and, and Margot Robbie has proved that she is a quite capable actress. So I really feel like Quentin Tarantino didn't give her much to do in this. She's, she's basically a, a, uh, framed photograph that moves around the city a little bit, but she doesn't, I, I never got much of a sense of who she is as a person. You know, we see her watching herself in a movie and, um, driving around, but, I don't know. I, I never really get much of a sense of who she was as a person. Uh, so that was kind of disappointing. Um, it was interesting. There, there is a, there is a scene with Bruce Lee in this Bruce Lee and, uh, uh, Brad Pitt's character interact. And given, given how Bruce Lee is handled in this, uh, it's, it seems pretty clear that, Quentin Tarantino has a bit of disdain for the actor, so uh, that was interesting. It's a fun scene, but, um, yeah, I mean, that is kind of, kind of the gist of this film is there's um, some fun scenes and, um, you know, the the on-screen camaraderie and chemistry between Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio is great, but as a whole, it just left me a wanting more and b just thinking about Quentin Tarantino's, you know, superior films, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, even Kill Bill, which split into two films is quite long, but I still think it's a quite, quite good film. So if you're a Tarantino fan, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this film to some degree or another. I mean, I know people who have seen it that it liked it better than I did. So, you know, um, that's all a matter of personal taste and whatnot, but yeah, um, not, not my favorite, but I, I still enjoyed it. I was definitely entertained while I was watching it, but, uh, unlike a lot of his films, I have no real desire to revisit it. I don't, um, you know, I really wouldn't call it a classic. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad I saw it, uh, glad he made it, but uh, certainly not on par with his earlier work. So that I would give Once Upon a Time in Hollywood 
probably I'd give it a I'd give it a seven out of a ten. Uh, the next movie I saw was Yesterday, which is uh, it was interesting because I saw that and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, on the same day. I took my mom to see this. So um, it's like I said, it's a British comedy. Uh, stars uh, Hamish Patel, uh, who which this is was his first film. Uh, he plays a struggling musician, and um, Lily James plays his manager slash best friend slash she is clearly madly in love with him, and he doesn't notice her. And sort of the gimmick in the film is that uh, he's been struggling to make his music heard, and no one's really interested. And so he decides to quit after playing a festival gig, and he rides his bike home and uh, there's a freak accident he gets hit by a bus but during the like at the exact moment the freak accident there's a weird incident around the world where all the electricity in the world goes out for 13 seconds and uh, in that time there are certain things in the world that in you know everyone's consciousness that just no longer exist and the biggest one of them being the Beatles, the the British rock group. Um, I, I don't really need to describe the Beatles uh, any more than that. But uh, the Beatles, n- nobody knows who the Beatles are. Uh, but uh, so when uh, uh, when Jack uh, Hamish Patel's character comes to, he, you know, he he remembers them, and it takes him a little while before he realizes that nobody else knows what he's talking about, and. Um, because of that, he starts performing the Beatles songs and passing them off as his own. And, you know, it's a, that's a, a moral dilemma conundrum comes up and, you know, that is sort of the, the crux of the story. Um, I, much like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this is, this is also a film by a director whose work I really admire, uh, British director, Danny Boyle, who I have seen all his movies. I wasn't sure if I had or not. Um, he has 13 films where uh, Quentin Tarantino has nine, and they started just about the same time uh, Quentin Tarantino's first film came out in 92. Uh, Danny Boyle's first film, Shallow Grave, came out in 94. So, but, you know, Danny Boyle is a little bit mo- more, uh, works at a Slightly faster pace, so yeah, he did um, Shallow Grave, Train Spotting, Twenty Eight Days Later, um, Slumdog Millionaire. You know, so a lot of a lot of award winning films and highly acclaimed films. Uh, I also went through and ranked all of his films after seeing this, and I I put Yesterday Dead Last as my least favorite film of his. Again, uh, it was entertaining. It was, it was sweet. Um, it was exactly what I predicted it to be. Um, you know, I like I said, I took my mom for her birthday. My mom's a huge Beatles fan, and I thought this would be, you know, because I go to the movies a lot. I thought my mom would enjoy it, and she did. And but she kind of had the same feeling. She's like, "Well, it, it exactly exactly what I expected to happen happened. It's a typical romantic story, a romantic comedy story." 
you know, thrown in with this little sci-fi twist, uh, and it's barely science fiction, but, and it's, mercifully, they don't explain, they don't try and explain how this phenomenon happened, and, uh, you know, because I've had a couple people who have seen it ask me what I thought happened, I was like, ah, it doesn't really matter, it's just the device in the film, and I don't think it would have added anything by trying to explain it, but, um, yeah, it was cute, it was sweet, um, Kate McKinnon steals pretty much every scene that she's in uh, playing a manager, uh, playing basically the human embodiment of uh, everything that is soulless in the music industry. And, you know, it's certainly played a little too on the nose, but, uh, you know, she's she's basically the equivalent of the movie's villain. Um, but, you know, Kate McKinnon has a great time, and, you know... Almost any film I've seen her in, whether or not it's mediocre or fantastic, she does a phenomenal job in it, and she's great in this as well. Um, There's a a quirky little cameo by Danny Boyle regular Robert Carlyle at the end. I I, I won't spoil it, but uh, it's an uncredited cameo, so if you've seen the movie uh, and are wondering, hey, who's that who's playing fill-in-the-blank, it's Robert Carlyle, and, you know... So that was fun. He's he's he played Begbie in both Train Spotting and Train Spotting Two, and he had a small role in The Beach, and uh, he was involved in Twenty Eight Weeks Later, the sequel to Twenty Eight Days Later. Uh, so he's been in several things, but uh, you know, it was fun. Ed Sheeran plays a, a you know a stylized version of himself, and it's kind of fun. Uh, like I said, it was it was a fun movie, but not an amazing film. I certainly have uh, high standards for Danny Boyle, and you know this is not not his best film. And uh, oh, he also did the Steve Jobs movie. I forgot about that. Um, not not his best film, but certainly one of his most mainstream. And you know, I'm not sure what exactly about the script attracted him to it. Uh, it was fine. It's not everything has to be high art. Um, it's certainly not an embarrassing film, but it's just not an amazing film. So, yeah, I would give Yesterday a six. Um, the next movie I saw was uh, this film called Crawl by Alexandre Aha. And, you know, he's done quite a few horror films. And this is, uh, you know, it, it's still playing. It's It's actually doing fairly well. It has a $13.5 million budget, and right now it's at $53.7 million. Um, and, you know, it's it's a um, uh, Kea Scodelario. Uh, she plays a swimmer, college-age swimmer, who she's estranged from her father, played by Barry Pepper, and he lives... Uh, uh, in southern Florida, and there's a hurricane coming, a Category 5 hurricane coming, and she can't reach him, so she decides to go see if she can find him to get him out of there, and she finds out he's been he's been injured uh, in the crawl space underneath the house uh, by an alligator, and uh, so it's basically her trying to 
save herself and get her dad out of the way of the alligators before the hurricane completely decimates where they are. And, uh, you know, I had seen the trailer for it, thought, uh, might be okay, might not, uh, really had low expectations for this. I mean, you know, Lake Placid is a lot of fun. It's the giant alligator movie set in Maine that came out almost 20 years ago, but, you know, Sharknado is a ridiculous, ridiculous franchise. So I didn't really know what to expect from this movie, had low expectations, and was really pleasantly surprised. Um, It was actually... uh, There's a real deliberate pace and tension is built and built and built in this film. It was also, you know, I was kind of expecting the alligators to be super alligators or, you know, some sort of, you know, Jaws vendetta that they would have, but it's not that. I am using plurals because there's more than one alligator. Um, But, um, yeah, both both, uh, Kaya Scotolario, and I, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but uh, both her and Barry Pepper give very believable, compelling performances, and uh, um, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I it, it, it exceeded my expectations. I went in with low expectations and had a lot of fun. It, it was a lot of uh, genuinely tense and you know some some scary moments. It, it, it's not a there's no supernatural element or anything like that. It's just a you know a nature nature horror film and. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. You know, seeing it on the big screen, you could tell, uh, like, all the grass and stuff like that around the house and the exterior shots. It was clear that this was a set uh, with green screen behind it, uh, which is fine. Um, oddly enough, the CG for the alligators was fairly convincing. Um, they didn't look like CG creatures, even though they clearly were. Um, so, uh, on a small budget, it was nice to see they spent the money on making the creatures look believable, and, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I, I, you know, I'd give Crawl a seven. Um, if you like nature slash disaster horror movies, I'd definitely recommend it. Um, and then the last movie I saw is a documentary called Lost Soul, the Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau came out five years ago. I just heard about it uh, maybe a month and a half ago. So I'm a huge fan of the 1996 film, uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau, which, um, you know, I had heard rumblings about uh, what went on in the pr- production of this, because that movie, ultimately, uh, John Frankenheimer directed it and, uh, but I knew, you know, this was pre-social media when it came out, and, you know, I'd heard rumors for years about the, 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 um, kind of plagued production of this film, and all the problems that they were having, and that the, the original director had been fired early on in the production, uh, you know, three and a half days into it, into filming, actually, he was fired, which I didn't know until this, uh, and so it was, it's a really fascinating look into how a, you know, mid, mid budget, mid level budget studio film 
a gets gets made and then kind of gets falls apart and you know the the person the visionary behind the original uh vision gets removed and it's sort of like a snake with no head for a while and um is is famous for um uh stars Val Kilmer and uh and uh, Marlon Brando in one of his last roles and both of the both of those actors are notoriously uh or infamously difficult to deal with to work with and kind of hearing how both of them got involved with the project and then uh Val Kilmer tried to get off of the project and basically was contractually held to it so he was just an absolute nightmare to deal with and it was interesting cuz there's interviews with a lot of the cast who is involved, uh, you know, Val Kilmer was not interviewed for this, uh, does not paint him in a very good light at all. Um, there, there, there's some archival footage with a lot of the stunt players and some of the, the smaller, uh, uh, smaller actors as well. But, uh, you know, the, the three main actors who are in the final film, Val Kilmer, uh, Marlon Brando, and then David Thewlis are not involved in this. Uh, Rob Morrow, who was originally cast in the role that was recast with David Thewlis, uh, talks in this as, as well, as well as Feruza Balk, who who has one of the, the leads in the film as well. But, yeah, a lot of the actors uh, who, who were, uh, play the creatures in it have a lot to say, and, you know... Obviously, stuff can be taken out of context or whatnot, but which so many people talking about just what a complete, what a complete bastard Val Kilmer was. It's it's hard to dispute uh, that this is that's probably the way he it is, or at least was on this film. Um, you know, I just end up feeling really bad for Richard Stanley. Uh, he hasn't really worked much since this since this came out um but one one of the really interesting things which one of the rumors i had heard for years and years was he had actually secretly snuck back onto the set at disguised as one of the creatures and you know it's confirmed in this film there's actual footage of him because he was he was paid off by new line cinemas the the studio that produced this film to to leave the, the film, and not only leave the film, but leave the island that uh, they were filming on off the coast of Australia, and he didn't, and he kind of lost his mind and was just holed up in the house that they had rented for him for months, and he had eventually, uh, you know, they, they fitted him with a with a costume. Uh, some, some of the other stunt players had fitted him with a costume and brought him back to the, to the set, and he, he's actually in the film in costume in a film that he was barred from the set from. This is pretty interesting. And, and he's interviewed in modern, uh, uh, modern footage talking about his experience on the film. So it's pretty interesting hearing how an actor or I'm sorry, a director who this was really his passion project and then had it taken away from him, how he kind of worked through his own demons and his, his also his thoughts on a, putting so much time into this and then be having it taken away from him. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's certainly not a, 
doesn't have a happy ending, but it's just kind of a fascinating look at uh, what many people consider to be a train wreck of a film. I I actually have a really soft spot in my heart for the film The Island of Dr. Moreau. Um, it's the third version of the H.G. Wells book uh, turned into a film, but it has some some interesting elements that are in none of the other ones, uh, particularly Brando's character, because his take on Dr. Moreau is very different than both the book and the both of the other film adaptations, and his insistence on having his tiny assistant, and uh, it's, uh, there's a, there's a young, young actor in it, uh, who's since passed away, uh, I'm looking for his name here, but uh, I, I, unfortunately, I don't remember the actor's name, but he, he's South American, and he, at the time, he was the smallest man living, he's, he's about, he's just under two feet tall, and he's in heavy makeup throughout the film, but, uh, you know, they end up building a, a tiny little piano for him to play on top of Marlon Brando's piano, and he just ends up mimicking uh, a lot of Brando's actions in the film, and, you know, famously, South Park mimicked this in uh, a few episodes early in their career, or early in the the run of South Park. Uh, there's, you know, there's a crazy doctor who has a tiny little... Uh, assistant named Kevin who looks just like him. Uh, but yeah, it was interesting hearing how that all came about because that's not a character that was originally in the script and it was basically created at Brando's insistence and a lot of the actions that that character was gi- given were originally in the script for another actor and Brando just had them take it away from him because he wanted this 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 little fellow in as many scenes with him as possible. So yeah, it was interesting to see how Val Kilmer treated people, and also just how off the rails Marlon Brando got, you know, late in his career, and, you know, hadn't learned the script, and was adjusting his wardrobe. Basically, he could, because he was the star, he did whatever he wanted, and they adjusted the film accordingly. So, yeah, um, if you're, if you've seen The Island of Dr. Moreau, I 100% recommend this film, just because you can kind of get the behind-the-scenes nitty-gritty of it. If you haven't seen it but are interested in, you know, how Hollywood films are made and sometimes how they fall apart, definitely recommend it as well. It, it is... Um, it's a very behind-the-scenes look. I mean, it's kind of a feature-length version of a behind-the-scenes extra that would be on a lot of DVDs, but... You know, it's almost two hours long, and it's doesn't portray everything all glossy. It's a very real portrayal of a movie falling apart. So, yeah, I found it incredibly interesting. I'd give Lost Soul 8 out of 10. I uh, highly enjoyed it. So, um, yeah, those are the movies that I saw in the last couple weeks. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.